Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of this changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, February 6, 2012. This is episode 1065, 1065 of the Survival Podcast. We have a great one today. I got a guy uh, I'm about to bring on for you named Mark Kirkwood, and he is changing the way you build an earth ship. Now, the way you used to build an earth ship is you got a bunch of tires. And you got a bunch of dirt, and you got a sledgehammer, and then you spent the next six or seven years of your life pounding dirt into tires. And people that want to build one, I've always said, do me a favor, go out and get a tire and some dirt and fill one tire first before you make your decision. Mark's changing the way we do that. They're still using rammed earth tires, but they have a new way of getting the dirt in the tire, and they're combining these earth ships with a monolithic dome. And they're reducing the cost and time to create an earthship style home, which is probably the ultimate survival home, especially in the, in the South. We're going to have him on to talk about all of that and more in just a bit. We'll get into some permaculture things as well and some other cool stuff, aquaponics as well. So, uh, we'll have him in just a moment. Before we do though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backwoods Home Magazine. Hey, if I'm going to have a magazine publisher as a sponsor, Backwoods Home's the one I want, and I'll tell you why. I got out of the Army back in 1993, and I've pretty much been a subscriber and reader of Backwoods Home ever since. When they contacted me and wanted to work with us, I didn't have a spot for them in the sponsorship lineup, but I did bring them into the member support brigade. That relationship worked out well and evolved, and when a spot opened for them, I was able to give it to them. And it's pretty cool now to be working with people that I read all my life, like John Silvera and Dave Duffy, uh, two great writers, Jackie Clay, uh, Mas- Masada Yud. I mean, to, to be working with their organization now, Um, you know, after kind of growing up reading all of their stuff, it's just awesome. So, uh, check them out today. If you're not a subscriber to Backwoods Home, go over to their website. You can read about half of the articles of every issue for free on their website. They're switched on enough to know if they give you some of their content, you might be willing to pay for the rest. Check them out today. Backwoodshome.com. Next up today, uh, knifekits.com. You know, I'll tell you what. Knife, knife making is something that a lot of people, you know, kind of fancy doing someday. It's one of those, I'll get to it one day things. But when you start looking at it and you start thinking about forging steel, right? And you're like, ah, oh, let's start with this blank piece, like an old file or a truck spring or something. And people make really great knives out of that stuff, but you, you gotta really have a lot of equipment and know what you're doing. And a lot of people just want to kind of get started and learn the basics. Well, KnifeKits.com, whether you're a master bladesmith and you're looking for exotic or cool materials to do your finishing work with, or if you've never made a knife before in your life and you want to start out with how the heck do I sharpen a knife and what what are hand tools, how do I use those to, to finish the scales, which are the handle uh, elements of a knife, you can get a kit, you can get a video, you can get a DVD, you can get a book, you can learn everything you need to know to start making knives that are unique and customized to your preference right from day one. So whether you want Buffalo Horn or Damascus Steel for your next custom project or you just want to get started, check out KnifeKits.com. Next up, I want to remind you guys about TSP Mint. 
Go over to TSP Mint. We have some cool silver medallions there for you. We're working hard to get some other stuff in there, some gold and copper again. And uh, we're already working on the next Survival Podcast silver medallion. So get the ant ones while you can. They're going to be a limited edition run at some point. We'll pull the plug on that. I think we've sold close to, but not quite, 8,000 ounces. I, I got that completely wrong. Close to, but not quite 7,000 ounces. I think we're at about 6,600 ounces of the ant coins uh, so far. Check out tspgear.com. We have some cool stuff there. Check out the Revolution is Brewing uh, t-shirts. Uh, they're kind of done off of a play on the concept of coffee. They look really good. There's a shirt that you'd wear anywhere. And, uh, but it also has that subtle message about the survival podcast and preparedness. Uh, the new revolution is brew. Um, coffee mugs are awesome. Check those out. Check it all out. Get yourself some of the Every Citizen of Sentinel gear as well and some of the regular survival podcast gear. And we'll be continuing to expand the gear shop and bring new stuff to it. Um, I also want to remind you guys about our Zello channel. Get on, on on Zello. It's really cool. Z-E-L-L-O.com is how you get the app. Or go to the survivalpodcast.com and look where it says connect with TSP. You'll see the Zello link there. And connect with really great members of the community. Connect, get on our forum, guys. There's so much to TSP beyond just the podcast. Get in, get in and get connected with other members of the audience. And uh, get over to 13 Skills if you haven't done so already. We need you there. And we are looking to feature your content. Um, I mentioned this yesterday, but Dorothy did a post. She's going to start putting stuff up on Friday. Uh, we're going to try to do one a day as long as the material comes in. So we got plenty of room now. If you're a blogger, if you've done a forum post, if you've done anything that says online, a Flickr slideshow, a YouTube video, hey, I'm working on th my 13 skills in 2013, and here's one of my projects. And it doesn't have to be finished. It's just here's what I've done so far. Get it over to us. We'll feature it on the blog. And it can be little or big, folks. Don't don't second-guess yourself. Some of the small stuff, uh, other members need to see that so that they know uh, that, that you know it, little steps are incremental toward getting us to achieving our goals. For those who don't know, 13skills.com is a site I conceived of early last year. We launched it in conjunction with our uh, our web developer, David Larson. It's run by my site, Dorothy Spirico. Her email to send your your, uh, your suggestions or your, uh, your projects to, skillgirl at 13skills.com. Again, skillgirl at 13skills.com. If you want to CC me on that, to be sure that it gets where it needs to go, that's fine. My email for all purposes, Jack at the Survival Podcast.com. If you have a question or comment or something like that for me you'd like to see on the air, the format is put question for Jack, comment for Jack, um, you know, video for Jack, article for Jack, something like that. But the, two, the, the words for Jack should follow one word and it'll go into my queue to get looked at for that purpose. But Jack at the Survival Podcast.com is my email address. It is the only email address I use. Every email address I have that's not that forwards there. Don't message me on Facebook. Don't send me a message on LinkedIn. You may or may not hear back from me that way. If you email me, I can't answer everybody, but it's your best shot at getting a response. All right, with that knocked out, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Again, I have Mark Kirkwood on the line. He is from Biotexture Training. He's uh, 36 years old. He has worked as a banker. Uh, health ins He's worked in health insurance, pest control, and construction. I guess he didn't like that uh, because he does something entirely different today. He's married with three kids, his business partner, and he has invested a year and a half and several tens of thousands of dollars to build the foundation for people to come and learn how to live free of the systems of man. Today we're going to be talking about earthships and how they're the perfect survival vehicle. 
We have a new hybrid Earthship that is mixed with monolithic dome technology. That brings down the price significantly. They teach people how to build them in conjunction with aquaponics and permaculture plots of land. Uh, they believe an area as small as one acre can provide massive quantities of food and income. An area as small as one acre can be more than enough if you manage it right. Where have we heard this before? Maybe from Uncle Jack. Anyway, uh, with that, let me just say, and I'm really excited to be able to say this. Hey, Mark, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, you know, we're going to talk about Earthships today, and I've always been a fan of the concept but I've never liked the whole tire issue. So, cause I was going to build an earthship at one time in my life. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And then I thought, you know what? I'll fill a tire with dirt and see what that's like. So a day later, I was really tired and really sore and thought, how am I going to fill like 5,000 tires? That's what people think of when they think of earthships is these houses built into the ground and into the landscape out of tires. You have a new design. What's different about your design? Well, okay, so we're still using rammed earth tires, and I, I agree. Everybody is afraid of the rammed earth tires. That's that's the initial drawback, because if you're just building your house by yourself, who wants to pound 800 tires on their own? It, plus, you have to move the dirt to do it. So we're still using rammed earth tires, but we've mechanized the process with a piece of equipment we call the iron butterfly. And... Uh, it, what it's done is it's enabled two people to uh, pound 40 tires a day without using a sledgehammer. Oh, I like that. And <laughs> it's, really, it's really straightforward. It's pretty easy to use. Um, we're going to start selling them on our website for uh, about 1200 bucks, 1500 bucks. Um, but what we're going to do is a buyback program. Oh, okay. So it's... It's kind of like a rental. What you do is you, you, you buy it from us at full price, and then we'll buy it back from you at half price when you're done. So if, you, if it takes you two years to, to finish your project, then two years later we'll buy it back, and then we'll recycle it. Because it's kind of a one-use piece of equipment, and if you're not building more than one house, then it's just going to sit and rust. So you know, it's, it's a really easy piece of equipment to use. Uh, anybody can do it, and it uh, runs off electricity, so bam, it's done. You can get, uh, if, you, if you use a series of people, like five or six people, uh, we estimate that you can get the process up to about 120 tires a day uh, per group of five people. So if you have two groups of five people working on this, you'd have to have a tractor delivering dirt, but uh, you, can get, you can get the walls of one of these structures up in just a week, so... That, 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 that's right there with stick construction, and I, it's such a, a better structure. It, it, it's really cool to me, and I think that if if you if you think and you go twelve hundred bucks again, I'll go back to fill one tire. If you fill one tire, and if this equipment yeah. works the way you say it does, you'd fall over yourself if you were building someone to have that piece of equipment at that price. And we're going to get into permaculture a little bit later on, but that's a very permaculture ish business model that we're going to sell you the product but in the end the company selling you the product is taking final responsibility for the product as far as being recycled with a buyback program and to me that makes a lot of financial sense for both the customer and you yeah i mean what it ends up being is your your cost is like 600 bucks to rent a machine for however long you want to rent it um you know, without the rental. So it's you own it until you want to sell it back. 
And it just, it makes sense. Um, you know, we're not in it for the money. We're in it to change the planet. And, uh, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not an environmentalist by any means of the word, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, when I say change the planet, I mean change the social systems. Um, we need to, we need to redefine the way that we build structures. And, uh, earthships are the right way to build in the future, in my opinion, because, uh, well, first, it's an extremely safe and a secure structure. We all live in, you know, basically wood built sticks built structures. And, uh, comparatively, I mean, we can build you a house that's tornado proof or, or resistant, hurricane resistant, uh, wind resistant, uh, fire resistant, uh, termite resistant. You know, uh, the only thing that we probably can't stop is a flood. So, sure. Uh, and that, neither can anything else, right? So I guess you can put a house yeah. on stilts like they do on the beach, but if you get hit with a hurricane with a with a stilt house or, or really a tornado, I mean, and you're new to Texas, right? I'm long-term Texan. Let me tell you, you go through one or two tornado seasons down here, and you'd like a nice, heavy earthen structure over your head versus, you know, what we all live in. Yeah, and the other design change we're doing is we're marrying – uh, earth ships with monolithic domes. Um, this is when Mike Reynolds first started out, and uh, let me interject this here. But it's it's pretty important. I am not Mike Reynolds. I am not Earthship Biotecture. Um, I am not part of that organization, nor do I want to be. Uh, they're a closed system organization run by a figurehead, and he does things the way he wants to do them. I'm incorporating every technology that, that is current, that is available today, that is going to make um, sustainability uh, uh, available to everybody. Um, so with the marrying of monolithic domes, what we've gone is to a, a round structure. Um, in Texas here specifically, that works really well because uh, earth ships that are in tropical climates, and Texas is mostly a subtropical climate. Absolutely. Uh, they're all round. We don't want solar gain here. The heat is the enemy. <laughs> and so, you know. Yeah, we got, oh, we I got, I'm yeah, we got some, because it'll go down. It has to go down to 30 degrees for me to even want to turn the electricity on in a regular house in the state. Yeah, I, and the reality is, is what we do is we build up we build a backup system, which is a thermal rocket mass heater that vents through the floor. So it uses very little wood to con, to combust and heat. And you're just uh, we add those to our aquaponic systems too, so you can grow all year long. But uh, so in marrying the monolithic dome to the top of an Earthship, what you have is uh, probably one of the strongest structures on the planet. Uh, they you know, we're using we're using lightweight concrete. Uh, it's it's insulated uh, concrete. It's it's a new product. It's really amazing. It's actually been around for about 16 years. But we're using a granulated uh, styrofoam in the concrete as opposed to uh, gravel or sand, and it ends up being one of the most amazing products I've ever used. I've got a construction background. And when I learned about this concrete, it changed my perspective of construction completely. Um, it was like a doctor learning that everything that you've learned from the beginning was wrong. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you've ever got, carried a five-gallon bucket of concrete, you know it weighs, you know, 60, 80 pounds when you're carrying it. If you've ever carried a five-gallon bucket of this stuff, it weighs like 10 pounds, uh, maybe. And... 
it's its structural integrity is it outperforms concrete in every way. You can beat it with a sludge hammer all day long, and it will not crack. It will not come apart. Um, it, it'll absorb blow after blow after blow after blow. And it's six inches thick. It'll stop an AK-47 round at point-blank range. Awesome. And I'll tell you, it makes sense because it's got... Basically, inherently, then it must have some give in it, and that would be the difference between taking a sledgehammer and beating a tire. You can beat a tire all day long with a sledgehammer, uh, as you know from filling them the other direction. Yeah. Um, it ain't going nowhere. You can beat it and beat it and beat it. It'll still be a tire at the end of the day. You start beating on a rock, sooner or later it'll crack. So by giving some of that pliability to something that's rigid, you get kind of a hybridization there. Yeah, um, all the PSI testing on this concrete is is far superior to, to the base material concrete we use in structures today. So we're really excited about that. And, uh, you know, using the monolithic airform technology to put it on top of a, a tire structure, we've even improved that quite a bit. Um, you know, we use, we use geodesic dome greenhouses in our aquaponics. And so, you know, in the last few builds of aquaponics systems, we've realized, you know, why aren't we just building the geodesic greenhouse frame and then sheeting it with plastic and pouring our concrete on that? So we're actually, in the next couple of weeks, going to be testing that theory. And uh, it will bring the roof structure within reach of everybody. Uh, you'll be able to put a roof on one of these houses for just a couple of thousand dollars. Awesome. As opposed to, like, yeah, as opposed to, say, like, for instance, Mike Reynolds, uh, 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 his new or his newest design, which is the one that passes code, um, the global model. That's a forty thousand dollar roof. Not so, forty thousand dollar house. Forty thousand dollar roof. And because if you get too expensive with these technologies right now, the problem is you kill them in a way that I think a lot of people aren't really switched on to or aware of. And what I mean by that is. It wasn't a monolithic dome, but it was a geodesic dome house that I looked at when we relocated recently. It was a beautiful house. I would have loved to have had it. The price was more than fair. I could afford it. It was on seven acres. It was absolutely gorgeous. Top-end kitchen, you know, uh, energy saver appliances. A lot of thought went into the construction. I couldn't get financing for it. And at the yeah. price they wanted for it, I could not afford to whip out 50% down to get some kind of unconventional financing on it. But if I could have gotten a standard mortgage on it, even at 20%, I could have bought it. So one of the things holding back these technologies is the availability of financing. And everything we can do to bring the construction costs down creates other creative solutions to acquire that money. So, yeah, I mean, our goal, we can build a two-bedroom, one-bath, full 1,250-square-foot uh, round Earthship with a monolithic dome over the top of it that can have a second story added into it really easily. Uh, so you can double the square footage, almost completely double the square footage. Uh, you know, material cost is right around 20 grand. Wow. And that puts, that puts it right in the price range where people can start piecing it together year by year and, and building it. And the reality this is a modular is, aspect, right, where I can, I can plan for the future. I can build what I need now, and, but if I really want four bedrooms and, you know, my mother-in-law living with me or whatever, I can plan that expansion over time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, what we're trying to do is, uh, you know, what we're doing is we're offering training courses to teach people how to build these. Uh, and so you come, you build a house from start to finish, 
and then you get your materials list, you know exactly what you're doing with the materials list, you go out, you build a structure, and, uh, you know, it may take you a couple of years to get it completed, but it's right within the price range of where most people can can afford to do that. And that $20,000 material cost, that's if you buy everything. If you go out and you scavenge, you find your toilets, your showers, your paint, your glass, uh, your your appliances, uh, you put together your own solar panel kits, that kind of stuff, that price can be reduced probably by half. You know, we have some static costs that that are consistent, like concrete, it, it's pretty consistent. But, um, like, say, for instance, compared to a cob structure or something like that, you're still going to have to put on all the toilets and all of those other things. Sure. The labor difference between an airship and a cob structure, which a lot of people are headed towards, is first you have, for a good solid cob structure, you have to have a good footing. Good, the rules with cob is good boots, good hat, Right. So you've got to shed the water off. You've got to have a good pair of boots underneath of it, so a good solid concrete foundation. You know, a, a crew of about 10 to 20 people can only raise a cob wall about six inches a day. So you're looking at, a, wow. you know, 160 days of labor uh, just to raise the walls on a cob structure, not including the interior. And then a lot of people are saying compressed earth brick is the way to go right now. And I'm, I've just got to warn people out there about compressed earth brick. We stopped building with brick in the United States a long time ago. It is not structurally sound. If you have an, an earthquake, brick shears apart. I'm from Seattle. Uh, we had an earthquake about a decade and a half ago. And a lot of those old buildings, the bricks just sheared right off of them. And uh, brick and block, we don't build with brick and block anymore. Uh, what we build with here in the United States when we use block is we fill it with concrete and rebar on the inside, so that wall will flex but won't come apart. Now, earth block, if you compress it and you stack it on top of each other, uh, you, you bounce it a little bit and you shear a little bit left to right, and those walls will come right down. Uh, and a lot of people will argue there's a lot of old structures on the planet that have gone through earthquakes. Uh, and survive them, but and, and that is true. There are old earth block structures on the planet, but there's very few of them. Um, <laughs> and there were there were millions of earth earth block structures on the planet that don't exist anymore. That's that's uh, a good point. It's not so much what's left, but how many were there, and how and how did they go away? Yeah, and so um, what we're building with a with a a rammed earth tire and a monolithic dome structure is a 3,000-year structure. Um, we're trying to build houses that uh, the repairs on the inside are easy. You're using mud. We use cob on the inside, but it's plastering for the walls. Uh, and so... Um, it's a know, coating, not the structure itself. You're doing it for aesthetic reasons and a little bit of um, probably functionality as well. Yeah, it absorbs humidity. Cob is great to control humidity. So... Um, you, you're you're looking at uh, a structure that can be passed down from generation to generation to generation, with technologies that are really easy to maintain um, and set us free from the systems of man. So you're off the grid, you're 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 collecting your own rainwater, uh, so you have your own drinking water source and your own cooking, and, and you're recycling your water through gray water systems, and uh, you're using your septic tank to collect methane off of it. Uh, for cooking fuel, um, 
you know, it, it it's a it's a building that will stay at a really consistent temperature all year long. Monolithic domes. If, you, if anybody's out there who's done any research with monolithic domes, they're uh, they're a highly energy efficient structure. Um, it it requires very little energy to put put them within the comfortable comfortable range, and they are so well sealed that they you have to put oxygen monitors and venting into them because they're so well sealed you can kill yourself by removing all the oxygen out of them. So, um, you know, in conjunction with an Earthship underneath it, you're just adding in all the systems that will keep that structure at a really consistent temperature. And domes, I mean, you, I don't have to really explain the math on a dome. All you have to do is take an egg, hold it between your fingers long ways, and try and squeeze it and break it, and you can't. And that is built out of garbage. Uh, it's built out of... Uh, of real poorly put together calcium, um, and it's it's got it bonds together, but it if you squeeze it from the other side, it'll just crack right apart. So uh, you look at a dome from that perspective, and you realize there's just there's nothing else out there that's stronger than a dome. It, 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 you know, maybe comb. You know, yeah, and I mean part part of this is there is. Uh, this group of people, with, especially within the permaculture movement, that are of this belief that, hey, it's easy to live without air conditioning. And they all live in this place called the North, right? So I go up there, and I hang out with them, and I do workshops. And they're like, yeah, you don't need an air conditioner. I'm like, you're in Vermont, okay? You're in Vermont. I live in Texas. We had 101 <laughs> days in a row last year, over 100 degrees, and during that entire period, we had a quarter-inch of rainfall. We need to be able to moderate our climate. And the only way we can do that without conventional AC, in my opinion, is to get into earth contact structures. It's the only thing that does that. And this does that. Yeah. Yeah. With geothermal cooling tubes pulling air in, um, you're going to reduce the temperature on the inside of the structure immediately by, you know, 10 to 20 degrees. But we are basically, we build eight-foot tire walls. They're monolithic retaining walls and they're built round so it's extremely strong and extremely flexible um, and then we berm up all the way around the structure to the top of the eight foot walls and so you, you've got a, a consistent thermal mass base there that is going to provide just right around 70 degrees all year long no matter what and then you put a and dome over that want, right? that's, that's, that's the number we tell us we can't have yeah. And so we put a dome over the top of that and put convection draw skylight at the top of that, put a couple of cooling tubes in through the walls. And uh, when it's 110 degrees outside, we'll pull in uh, 70 degree air and you'll stay at a nice, consistent 70 degrees all year long. Let's talk a little bit more about your training courses. So you mentioned people basically come in, they learn how to build a house, all the systems. So what kind of a time yeah. commitment and a cost uh, association is there with that? Okay, so um, we're looking at a six-week training course to be start to finish. Um, and it it depends on participation, how far we're going to get into a training course. With uh, 10 to 15 people, we should be able to complete a structure within six weeks. Um, 20 is better. It lightens the workload and uh, makes it a lot easier. Um, Cost-wise, we're, we're probably going to charge uh, $1,200 for our next our next structure. Um, 
and what uh, what it, it we do a little we do a little tough stuff. What we require is people camp on site for six weeks, and that's that's hard on people. But what it does is if you're if you're city folk, um, and you've never really done any camping or anything like that. It breaks the systems of man right out of you. It's like uh, culture shock on a on a really hard scale. And then you do some hard labor. Um, it it puts you into a sustainable mindset. It it enables you to recognize that you don't need very much to survive. That uh, that a cold shower uh, and a community kitchen and a community toilet and some of these other things. You can survive and you can be happy and you can do well. Uh, and so we require people to camp uh, when we do it. And, you know, there's facilities when we do it. But uh, uh, it, it ends up being, you know, at, at week four, everybody looks a little haggard. Everybody's lost a little weight. Um, the guy, guys and girls, they're all, you know, flexing out. They've got muscles all over their body because they've been uh, working. Uh, it's a good experience for anybody. And when I did it, it was a great experience for me, too. I really enjoyed uh, – uh, my business partner and I, Morgan, went through uh, Biotexture Training's uh, first Earthship Academy. And uh, and that was a great experience. Um, so uh, I, I highly recommend that experience for anybody, especially if you're considering starting a, a sustainable lifestyle. You've got you to gotta know what it takes to do it. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. You got to have a brave soul. I also imagine if you spend six weeks camping out like that, and and then you go build your own earthship, that earthship's like a Taj Mahal compared to a tent, right? So it also <laughs> it, it, it takes the expectation and brings them down so low that a sustainable structure that you might have seen as a compromise now becomes a, an extreme luxury. Yeah, and 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 let me address that. You're with this earthship. You're not gonna you're not gonna compromise anything. It's gonna change the way you live because you're gonna start considering your house a machine instead of instead of turning on a light switch and having a constant flow of electricity. You're gonna recognize I'm only gonna turn my lights on when it's dark outside, and uh, I, I'm only gonna use the electricity when I've got it. So if you're a big TV watcher something like that, um, you're going to be limiting your TV to a certain amount of time during a day, which, in my opinion, you know, download your, your TV shows off of Netflix, get rid of the cable, and watch it for an hour and be done with it. Don't let another show come on and, you know, TV's killing us. Uh, as, a, as a culture, we've got the sitting down disease, and that sitting down disease is you were not... Uh, we're not being productive. And because we're not being productive, we're becoming apathetic. Now, I'm not saying if you go out and work a 40-hour work week that you're not a productive person. What I'm saying is there's a whole lot more hours in a week than 40. Uh, what, are, what are we doing with those hours? Well, and our bodies were not meant to remain sitting for the durations that we do. And a lot of people that work really hard mentally spend most of those 40 hours in a seated position even so it's not that like you said they're not productive or they're not doing something useful it's that biochemically bioengineering wise their body is not meant to do that no yeah i mean i i've got a chiropractor who told me uh 
humans were not designed to sit. We're designed to lay down and stand up. That's it. <laughs> that that makes a lot of sense. So you guys also have a pretty big focus that, that fits in with my audience on survival. In fact, I noticed uh, as I was going through your site, Sam Kaufman's name popped up. He's a good friend of the show, been on the air. I've been to one of his workshops on trapping. So you guys are building community for survival. Yes. Why is that an important thing to you guys? Okay, so I'm, I'm a survivalist. I was raised a survivalist. My parents weren't necessarily survivalists, but I was I was kind of just born that way. I don't know how else to you. It's just part of my gene code, I guess. Um, I've always been a hunter. I've always been a shooter. I've always been a, a woodsman. I've always enjoyed all of that. And uh, to all the survivalists out there, you know, um, build your skill sets. Absolutely. But there's something that survivalists across the board need to recognize, especially the prepper group and all of those groups. If you look into the studies of what happens when, uh, you know, things go bad, you know, you look at some of the things that have happened in, in, the, in the European bloc countries when wars have happened and some of the other stuff. When things go bad, it requires a community to survive. And a lot of survivalists, including myself, back, I, I would call myself an immature survivalist in the past. I believe that when things went bad, I would take my... My stuff, my family, I'd go out in the woods and I'd take care of me and mine. And uh, that's not a reality, people. It's not. It requires a community to be successful. Uh, you know, there was a study on primitive living skills. Uh, it still requires society to have a primitive living situation. Um, and so community is what we're actually about. Survivalism should turn into sustainability uh, as you mature. Sustainability is about building community and building systems that work in conjunction with each other to provide for everyone. It's not about just having enough for me and mine. I have to have enough for my neighbors and anybody else who comes to the door because otherwise we're going to be shooting each other. And uh, Absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I'm against that. I, I love my fellow <laughs> Americans. I love my fellow Americans. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I own several weapons, and I'm a strong believer in my Second Amendment right. But at the same time, I believe that we need to, we need to love one another and take care of each other as opposed to uh, going the other direction. Um, and there will be, you know, security is, is paramount. You know, security should always be number one in a survivalist situation. Uh, and so, you know, I believe in that. And that's why one of the things about the buildings we're building, yes, it is a wonderful living structure. But second, it's a bunker. I mean, this thing, you could drop a car on it from 100 feet and it'd bounce off. It's just, you know, it'll stop small arms fire. Uh, they're, they're, you could burn a forest fire right over this house. And you, if you closed up everything, you know, you probably wouldn't want to stay in the house while the forest fire is burning over it. But, uh, you know, <laughs> but it would be there when you came back. Yeah, it would be there when you came back. Uh, so, you know, because you don't want to – a forest fire kills you by the smoke and the heat. So, yeah, sure. Yeah, but the house would still be there. So um, you're looking at, at you know, a, we're, we take a holistic approach to this. We're looking at providing food through, you know, permaculture and aquaponics. Uh, we're looking at providing uh, water through uh, 
you know, hand-drilled wells, large uh, ponds that are appropriately built so they're very deep so that they don't uh, evaporate away. Uh, we're looking at, you know, permaculture swales, so you're, you're using every drop of water. Uh, like even here in Texas where, you know, the temperatures are pretty extreme, uh, you know, let's do a little math. Uh, if we take uh, 10 acres of land and it rains three inches in two nights, uh, an acre is 43,000, I think, 560 square feet. Okay, so, right. yeah, somewhere in that neighborhood. So let's just take 43,000. With three inches of rain, uh, a cubic foot of, of water is 7.8 gallons of water. So what you end up with is a million and a half gallons of water off of three inches of rain in three nights. Now, we don't have a water problem here. What we have is we don't have a water problem. We have a collection problem. Like everybody in Texas that, I mean, the property we're on right now, Shiaway Farms, uh, or Homestead, excuse me, the people that owned it previously trenched this whole property so that water would just flow right across it and off of it. I'm dealing with it right now on my homestead. I'm like, I I told my wife, I said, the main discharge off the road, and it's a huge discharge, is right here. She goes, how do you know? I said, because it's a ditch that leads off the property from this point to that point, and it was specifically to get rid of the water because they don't understand how to use the water, so they end up muddy for part of the year, but two months after they're muddy, they're in the middle of what? A drought. And it's yeah. just understanding how to the hydrology of the land and how to manipulate that water through the landscape and hold the water in the earth. I can hold a hell of a lot more water in earth than I can hold in a pond. My evaporation rate goes way down. And then if I put a forest over it, I decrease it further. And if I put mulch layers on top of that, increase the humus content, basically what I end up, and this is the way I've always explained this, the forest floor is a lake. Think about your numbers with three inches. What if we can hold three inches of water in that forest floor during the dry season? Collapse your 10 acres in, you've got a half-acre lake that's six feet deep. Uh, you know, I, you and I, I, I just love what you talk about. i got to be honest. <laughs> I, um, it, it, this stuff is exciting. Um, you know, we're, we just came across a new technology that uh, I think we're going to try and push for. Um, because it it just it it blew me away that the ancient people around us are way that were way ahead of us. Um, oh, yeah. Not a, a lot of people don't understand this, but here in the United States, there are pyramids on the east coast of the United States all over the place, and uh, and there's a large number of people that think that the pyramids were actually designed as water catchment basins. What they were, and there's actually it's called an air an air well, okay? If you look it up on Wiki, there's, there's, there's information about that. So we're going to start a rock pile, and we're going to build an air well. And uh, at, at high-end humidity with temperature, we're looking at probably collecting at least 100 gallons of water a day off of a rock pile. You know, we've it, it lost... Works. It, it works. It works. I mean, the, the Nazis did this, not that I'm a big fan of their work or anything, but some of the things they came up with, like rockets, are pretty cool. Um, there, I, I cannot remember the specifics, but there was, in one dry part of Germany, this basically what you're describing built a little bit differently air well that was found you know, 10 years after the war ended. I remember seeing a documentary, and it, 
it harvested somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 to 80 gallons of water a day. And it was consistent over and over. So when it rained, it also pulled that in and added to its reservoir. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're talking about some of these structures, these air wells being, you know, a couple thousand years old and, um, you know, supplying large sections of cities with water. Um, so these cities were surrounded with these piles of rock that were shaped appropriately that that funneled water into the cities. Um, you know, we've, I think we have a real big misunderstanding of how smart people used to be compared to who we are now. Uh, I think the more you copy something genetically, the worse the copy is. Um, we just have better storage capability as far as information goes. People w- have survived as long as they've been around without electricity and all these other things. You know, the average American needs, the list of needs is, what, 150 things long now? You know, people, you know, once years transformed into needs, right? Yeah, wants have turned into needs. We need to break that out of our society. It's like, for instance, we were talking today, lawns. Lawns are the number two waste of water in the United States, but they serve absolutely no purpose whatsoever. Uh, We need a change. We, we need now, let me change. bounce this off you. This is, this is a great question for people with lawns. Let's assume there were no lawns. We didn't have lawns. Nobody knew what a lawn was. And you walked up and down the average street, even with suburbs laid out the way they were, there was productive plantings in every front yard and backyard. Fruit trees, nut trees, berry trees, uh, gardens, things that are beautiful as well, flowers. Even, you know, even a crepe myrtle has its place and its purpose. And that was how everybody's landscape was done. And you came into a society like that and said, I got this great idea. We'll do away with all of that crap. We'll just get rid of it, plow it up, turn it loose, and we're going to put this stuff called grass, this turf grass in there. And, and you go, well, what does it do? It's green. Now, you'll have to water it. You'll have to edge it. You'll have to weed it. You'll have to fertilize it. And you'll have to cut it every week. And then you'll have to take away the, the cuttings and get rid of them so it doesn't get too much thatch in it but it'll be green and look like a carpet in your front yard. What do you think your odds of selling that to a society that didn't already have it would be? I mean, it has to be a million to one. None. I mean, I, okay, so let's, you know, you know where lawns came from, right? Oh, the, the, the Taj Mahal and everybody wanted to be the lord of the manor and have a sheep and, 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 and live like the great lord. And you, so you were like this mini lord with your mini castle. Yeah. So it's it's a status symbol. Only wealthy people had lawns. And so, um, you know, America, you need to wake up. You're not wealthy anymore. <laughs> Guess what? I had a secret for you. You never were either. You were lying to believing you were wealthy. Yeah, I mean, and, and guess what? You're not free either. You just have the, the uh, appearance of freedom. Uh, so, you know... This kind of stuff, people need to wake up and and start smelling the the roses that smell more like manure. Um, we're in a we're in a place in in our cultural history where things are rapidly changing. You know, and here's a scary thing that I I watched a documentary on Hitler. You know, a couple of months back, when Hitler came to power, from the time he was a nobody to the time they were pulling people out of houses and killing him was only five years. And uh, and things changed so rapidly, and it was only a small percentage of the society that pushed the the, the Nazi movement, um, but they were aggressive about it. You know, um, 
I'm a, you know, not to, not to, you know, bring this to a political point, but I'm, I'm a Ron Paul supporter. Uh, I love the man. I love You're what he stands You're in good company here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that movement grew. You know, the only reason he didn't go to the presidency is because they changed the rules. So, you know, I believe that, uh, if, if, if America wakes up, we can we can stop the the slow decay. But I just read an article uh, last night that China is buying 50 square miles of land in Idaho and uh, building a city there. <laughs> yeah, that's back again. That was something that went away, and now it's coming back. And and basically, I've heard recent rumors that some of China's foreign ministry has told the U.S. we would be willing to accept property in lieu of cash for some of the money you owe us. So these, the, 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 the eventual plan, and it's been called a conspiracy theory, but as you start looking at it, the eventual plan is these little Chinese islands of their version of a sustainable community right in the middle of America. And they have 1.7 billion people growing, and they need something to do with them. And they'd like to export a few of them, from what I can see. Yeah, I, I, at this point, I mean, it's just sheer simple math. You're, you've got a growing population and you've got a limited amount of resources to sustain that population. So what do you do? You expand. That's yeah. what happens throughout history. You expand. And we've made poor decisions. I mean, the the trade agreements, let's get off of it. <laughs> yeah, no, I could, let's get back to some of this community stuff here. Yeah. You said something very important that – survivalists need to understand the value of community. You're, you're preaching to the choir a little bit here, but I try to do it all the time because the choir needs to hear it too. Um, I've yeah. said that for years. I've, I've been big on building community. And one of the things that reinforces, and I'd like your thoughts on this when, when you kind of hear it and think about it. I had a guy named Selko. We call him that because he doesn't want to get his real name on. He's a survivor of the Balkan Wars. He runs a site called shithitthefanschool.com. And he basically details his entire experience. His opening statement about that was, when this happened, you either had people to side with, or you found them, or you were dead. And that was just a flat-out, absolute statement. If you were a lone wolf, no matter how many guns and ammo and supplies you had, you ended up dead, because more will always win that battle. Yeah, I met Selko on a forum years ago, a couple of years ago, before he opened his site. I, that's one of the things I, I reference in my mind when I think about you know, how bad things can get. You know, they just surrounded a city and shut off everything, and a city just survived for a year with nothing coming in. So um, you got you got some real good lessons to learn out of that guy. Um, I, you know, across the United States, you've got a probably pretty big listener group across the United States. I would like to encourage everybody in the United States to strongly consider moving to Texas. Um <laughs> And let me give just a couple of reasons why. Um, and everybody's going to say, oh, the heat, oh, the heat, oh, the heat. You know what? The heat enables us to have two full grow seasons here. We have two full farm seasons here. I planted uh, 68 plants yesterday. It's February, and they look beautiful out there right now. I mean, so I put yeah. in a garden yesterday in February. We had, we had all, all last week was about 70 degrees here in Austin. You know, it was January. Right. So, um, OK, so guns outnumber people here two to one. Um, we have the best infrastructure in the United States as far as road goes. Um, we have our own power grid. 
Um, we we are importing water, but we just talked about proper uses of how to maintain water. Um, the people here are amazing. I love the people here. I'm from the Northwest, and it, you know Oregon. Is, I'm in from Southern Oregon originally, and I love Southern Oregon because the people there are awesome. But you go to a big city like Seattle, and it's polite, but gosh, you just you never get to know anybody here. I mean, I had a tire go flat on a country road, and eight people stopped to help me. <laughs> yeah, it, it happens all the time, too. Eight different people stopped to help me. So um, in the area we're in right now, Bastrop, I, I feel like we were led here. Um, but uh, 80% of Texas has no codes, which means we can build whatever we want in Texas. Um, you can build an airship here, and you don't have to fight to build it. You don't have to try and build it in a city. Oh, well, there's jobs. Well, you know what? Bastrop, where, Bastrop County, where we're at right now, I believe Bastrop County is primed to be the center of sustainability in the United States. I don't know what it is about this area, but people are drawn here. There are small communities forming all over Bastrop County right now and in the surrounding area. This area around Austin is really thriving. It's got the right culture to do it. Um, and it can't be done everywhere. I proved it recently. We tried to do this outside of Tyler, and the people just, they weren't ready. They don't no. want it. No. no. Yeah, no, you're it, in a different world there. A different world. And so, um, you know, you have to have, you have to consider the social climate as well as the uh, environment when you make a decision about where you're going to land. And I want to strongly encourage people to start landing in Texas, uh, <laughs> not the desert side. You want to land on the yeah. east side of Texas? Yeah. Um, Let me quote Lawton when I talked to him about that. He said, you can do stuff in the desert, and it makes a really cool project, and it demonstrates what can be done, but don't make your life harder than it has to be. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that's what I tell people all the time. You know, when we build an aquaponic system, we build a simple system. I try to build it as fail fail proof as possible. So we build it a specific size so that's consistent. It's very hard to kill your fish. We build it a specific way that's low cost and easy maintenance so that it, you can just keep rolling out food 24-7, 365. And uh, it's, it's really important that you look at doing things not the hard way. If you yeah. can build in a place that has 50 inches of rain or 20 inches of rain, don't build in a place that only has six. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, if you got to do it, you got to do it. But if you have the opportunity and the choice, because I mean, like I'm in the uh, the Tarrant County area, which is as specific as I get on the air. Uh, but we get about 30 inches of rain a year here. You know, some some years it'll be 22, some it'll be 36, but it's an average of 30. That's a lot of rain. Uh, Lawton put it to me this way. He said, "You're in the same latitude as Jordan." And if I can if I can work with four inches in Jordan, think of what you should be able to do with the relatively same temperature range, but with thirty inches of rain. And, and there's a lot of there's a lot more rain, I think, even in the dry parts of Texas than people realize. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, you're looking at. Uh, do you mind if I say how many acres you have? No, not at all. Okay, so you have two acres of land. Let me do some really quick math. Actually, it's three. I guess I guess you pulled. How, how did you even know to? It's three. Three. You said yeah. it earlier. Okay. okay. So forty-three thousand times uh, uh, thir- uh, Let's do let's do uh, two. 
times 7.8 equals, you know, just off of two acres of land there, every year you're collecting close to 700,000 uh, in, uh, gallons of rainwater. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a it's a ton. Um, yeah, let's see, acres, three acres, thirty inches. Let's get an actual number just for the hell of it. Yeah, just for the uh, hell of it. Yeah, because people need to understand we're just not doing it right, guys. We're not catching it all. We're not absorbing it into our ground, and we're letting it run off. Uh, the calculator I found I broke. It, it's too oh, big a number. <laughs> okay, here. All right, so let's do 43,560. Per inch of rain, here's the easy way to do it. Per inch of rain, it's 81,000 gallons. So 81,000 times 30, if you want to do that number. Okay, 81,000 times 30. 30. It's uh, 2.4 million gallons a year. Yeah, it's 2.4 million gallons of water a year. Gosh, you know, I'm... Can you grow corn on that? I don't know. You know, let's be honest, people. We just need to be using our brains. Um, so, you know, can, you know, in our greenhouse, we're using convection draw systems with cooling tubes to grow all year long. Uh, we're using uh, thermal mass rocket heaters to heat during the wintertime. I mean, you can burn one six-foot-tall stick two inches around, and it'll heat your greenhouse all night long. Uh, you know... We just need to in, incorporate the right technologies to to be sustainable, uh, and we need to have the community to 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 do it. Um, so, what community activities do you like push? You know, pretty regularly. What I try to do is tell people the biggest thing is first start to actually meet each other. Get off Facebook, and I don't have a problem with Facebook as a step, but get off Facebook, get off the forum, get out and have a coffee together. Talk to each other, get to know each other, and, and start formulating these things. When I first started this, I was pretty much against the whole survival compound uh, concept. And in some levels, I still am. My belief is that you're much better off getting like-minded people together and having people have a piece, an acre, a half of an acre, or two acres that's theirs, but then cohabitate adjacent to each other because that solves a lot of the whole collectivist, communal-type concepts for people that aren't comfortable with that because you have your own space, yet you have the power of that community together. So that's kind of my, my eventual dream is to someday build a sustainable preparedness-based community like that. Um, but that's one of those things that, you know, that may be down the road. But my initial thing is at least press palms with people. Look people eye to eye. Barter with each other. Exchange services. Exchange goods. Take take your productivity out of this, this, this gerbil wheel cycle that is the mainstream economy and start putting it back in your local community. You were talking about backdrop and growing and jobs and all, and I think one of the things we need to understand with community and with a new economy is I think that the days of the giant super megacorp are dying. That much control in one place, people don't want it anymore. People aren't willing to tolerate it anymore. And let's face it, it doesn't really work that well for a large number of things. There's no reason you can't actually start to develop local economies. Instead of going, well, will somebody bring jobs? How about creating jobs in these local economies? How about actually getting together and going, well, I know how to do this. You know how to do that. We have a partnership here. We have an exchange here. Let's start creating reasons for people to want to come here and spend their money here. 
Let's start creating yeah. reasons for people to want to come here and stay here. And I'm yeah. with you on yeah. Texas, brother. I left for a year and a half, and I came running back. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I came to Texas a year and a half ago, and I love it. I, I will die here. You know, I, it's, I love it here. Um, it, it's got everything we need to to survive and be sustainable. Um, as far as, like, for instance, you know, community, what you do is you build in cottage industry into your community. Let's say, for instance, your power source is a biogasifier, all right? You know, you can buy a geek biogasifier right now that will produce 10 kilowatts for $18,000 shipped to your house on a pallet. It's ready to go. Just plug and play. Start feeding it wood. Well, then you got to come up with wood. So what, what do you need in a community to to do that? Well, you start a tree trimming business. You know, it's a built-in, sustainable cottage industry. So you start a tree trimming business, and you go out there, and you buy your chipper and your truck, and you get people paid to bring fuel to the house or to the community so that way you can have electricity and hot water. And then the biochar that comes off of it is a marketable product. I mean, you're just going to add that to the soil, enrich the soil, make it as fertile as, you know, the Aztecs could make it. And, uh, and you're going to change the topography, you know, by, by, you know, you go into permaculture, you know, you start, you start building in these types of systems. That's just a for instance. That's one of many that we've come up with. Well, there, there's so many. You're making me think now, right, of things that, like, I've had ideas for people to do, and I've even put out before, and I'm like, don't think you're stealing my idea. Go freaking do it, right? Like, so yeah. I remember there was this one apartment complex I lived in when I was really young, and I first moved here, and they had ponds. And the Mamus man was a pretty creative guy, and he came up with this contraption because they were, you know, quarter-acre ponds, and they get all the coontail and aquatic weeds, and it chokes out the whole pond. Well, they didn't want to chemically treat them, so he made this kind of, like, grappling hook thing, and he would walk around twice a season throw this thing and drag most of the weeds out, and they would be big piles, and they'd spread it out and run the lawnmowers over it. I was like, you know, you could set up a business with a couple of trucks that ran around and organically de-weeded farm funds for all these people that have them and need that done, take all that away and compost it, and what a marketable form of compost. And as long as it's not sitting in a, you know, a GMO cornfield with a bunch of uh, pesticide, herbicide, fertilizer washed into it, it's extremely mineral rich. You're talking about biogas, tree trimming. You probably are going to cut more trees than you will ever need for the gasifier. So now you have other wood products. Plus you've created jobs out there. Plus you've established relationships. Now you have a customer base. Once you establish a customer base with people that have their trees trimmed, you have the opportunity to go back to that customer base and bring other services to them, and you have the established relationships. And where is it easier to do? In the middle of a giant city where nobody has time for anything or in these smaller communities that are begging for you know commerce to come to them. And I think, like I said, I think that you'll never see a day when there's no big corporations. I really don't believe you will. But I think the day of the complete total dominance is waning and dying off. Yeah, I agree. Like, you know, Monsanto, I see Monsanto has 10 years left on it before it gets crushed. And, uh, yeah, the, the only way they're going to survive, they're going to have to do what they've done before. They're going to have to go, you know, Monsanto used to be a company that made chemicals to kill people with intentionally. Then they became a company that made, you know, chemicals to do things like PCBs, and that died. So then they went into ag. The only way they'll survive is to go somewhere else because – People are going to be done with this in a period of time. The GMO crap has got to go. Well, yeah, modern 
you know, modern farming, the GMO farming and everything, people need to wake up. Uh, modern farming, as we know, it has less than 10 years on it. It is about to die. Uh, and it, phosphate rock production on the planet is 40 years past per peak production. And China holds 67% of the reserve, and there's not enough left to last more than 10 years. You know, we feed a third of the planet out of the breadbasket of the United States, and the only reason that we're able to do that is with uh, fossil fuel uh, fertilizers and phosphate rock. And so those things are going away. And Not to mention that system itself is a failure, even if you can keep dumping it. Um, you're new to Texas. There's a local guy here in the Dallas area, pretty well known across the state, though, named Howard Garrett, organic gardener kind of guy on the radio. And he said a lot of these places where they grow the pecan fields down in central and south Texas, they're, they're, the pecans are deficient in potassium, so they keep dump, dumping potassium on them. They go in and test the fields, and there's an abundance of potassium in there, but it's no longer bioavailable. The trees can't pick it up. You need animals in that system to take that mineralized potassium and convert it and make it bioavailable. They just keep dumping it on. So the system itself is failing, and the supply is getting choked off. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, this... The, the 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 modern agricultural system is probably a bigger potential catastrophe than the economic disaster we're looking at. Well, yeah, I mean, they're all three. There's three things tied together here. We've got the economy, the energy, and the food production. They're all three tied directly together, and uh, they're they're all teetering on failure. And uh, um, you know, we have a sense of urgency here. I, I I'm sure that. Across the board, anybody who's listening to this has a sense of urgency. Like, we don't have a lot of time left. Um, that's why, you know, with biotexture training, I've taken everything that I've learned over the years, and I've tried to condense it down into a, a grippable, reachable, attainable thing for everybody. Um, and I'm not, we're not in this for the money. You know, a lot, you know, your tuition goes to pay for structures. It doesn't actually, you know, I make a, a small stipend off the end of it, but, um I'm living a sustainable life as much as I possibly can. I've joined a community so that uh, I don't have a big overhead. Um, I can uh, I can live at a, you know at a comfortable pace, and I work every day. Uh, I don't necessarily make a lot of money, but I'm I'm more than surviving. I'm thriving, and uh, this is this is something that people need to really really look into. Um, you know, we have people moving from all over the world right now to to this area of Texas, and uh, it seems like, you know, the more the percentage grows in any given area, the more successful something's going to be. And you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. There are some great permaculture farms here in this area. I'm really impressed with the people that we meet. Um, really, just across the board, good people. So, um, you know. We're killing our ground by dumping, like you were just talking about the pecan field. You know, you overabundance the pecan field with potassium. You're going to kill the uh, the uh, bacteria in the ground that process the potassium uh, so that it can feed uh, the trees. And that's what we've done in all of our fields across the planet is we've dumped commercial fertilizer on them, which is oil-based, and we scorched the ground. We killed the bacteria. Um, and we're looking at what I feel like is an intentional setup across the board, economically, the food base, uh, and the energy base. I, I feel like we're intentionally set up for, for something to pretty seriously happen and change. 
and it's you know if you if you listen to the zeitgeist movement well it's the it's that time frame when we go into change that uh is going to uh then a, an rbe uh, economy resource based economy will be able to roll in um that's where i call <coughs> you know yeah. it's uh <laughs> so glad you said that, especially with the episode I did a week ago. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, that's where I call, uh, you know, that's BS because we have to survive the time frame from when uh, there is a, a, a total collapse to something starting over again. And sustainability, we can do that now. There's, there's no reason that we t- need to just sit around and talk about it. Get your hands dirty, you know. Um, there's all kinds of people training all kind trains training all kinds of people out there. I teach people from the ground up. If you don't know how to use a power tool, I teach you how to use a power tool, a drill. We have people come through all the time who've never used a tool before. They've never needed to. And they've never used their back before. So you have to pace them so that they you know, they build up some muscle along the way. Because if they're a little bit in shape but not quite, they can hurt themselves real quick. I, I've seen people do that. They get out there, and this is easy, and 8 o'clock in the morning the next day they can't move. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. And so we try to avoid that as much as possible. Um, and, you know, we all start off, no one comes out of their mom knowing what to do every day. So, um, you know... I love teaching people how to live sustainably, and we we have an, the option here. We've got time, maybe maybe three years. I don't know. I keep saying three years. We got three years. We got three years. I hope we have three years. Um, if you if you believe you don't have three years, you need to not have your money in the bank. You need to not have your money in the stock market. You need to take your money out of gold and silver as quickly as you possibly can. Turn it into real assets. Then after the economy has collapsed, trade your goods and services for gold and silver back. Um, as a, as a, I used to work for banks. I used to be a financial advisor. Um, gold and silver is a zero point, people. It is a zero point. As the dollar falls, gold will rise. You need to pick your time to get out of it. Don't hold on to it because when, when society collapses, gold and silver won't be edible. Um, and at some point, it will come back into fashion, and you will be able to use it as a currency. But when when things go wrong, there's going to be a period of years there that gold and silver won't be worth anything. So it's interesting so, you say that because I take a different approach, and I, I have a guy on often that I really like his work named Chris Dwayne, who's the 100% yeah. gold and silver guy, right? I'm sitting right dead between y'all because I agree okay. in what I would call an anger phase of the initial breakdown your gold and silver won't buy you jack diddly crap the opportunity to acquire it though post collapse may not be as advantageous especially if you don't have any of it i look at it a lot like food okay so because you can't eat it but there's a similarity here so hear me out on this if you have food enough to eat tomorrow and next week and the week after you have 2 weeks worth of food Finding more food and getting more food, bartering for food, harvesting it, growing it, whatever, becomes relatively easy. If you don't have any food for tomorrow, getting more food becomes actually very, very complex and very complicated and very resource intensive. So I am a a gold silver guy that says hold 5 to 10% of your wealth there. Because you don't know what that dynamic play will look like. But the all-in guys always say, you know, if you feel comfortable with that, go ahead. But uh, yeah, maybe that'll be the guy I'm buying from in, in your timeline. 
Yeah, I'm I, I'm of the mindset that we should be investing the majority into tools and infrastructure for sustainability. Um, if okay, so we've proven that three acres of land with aquaponics can produce a million pounds a year in food. Okay, that's that, that. three. That's three acres of land with twenty people working it, producing a million pounds of food a year. People, so um, if you're a prepper out there and uh, you're trying to store up your year's worth of food, you know what? For the same amount of money that you can buy a year's worth of food, and when you're done eating it, it's gone, I can build you an aquaponics system that will run indefinitely as long as you maintain it. It will reproduce its own fish, reproduce its own food constantly. Um, you'll have to add some things in along the time, like a, a pump may burn out, so you need to have some backups and stuff like that. But uh, you'll be able to produce... 50 years worth of food off the same amount of money. It's a cost analysis breakdown, which people need to do. Um, it's like, it, is it worth it to build an earth, earth ship in Colorado where, you know, you have International Building Code 6? No, it's going to cost you $300,000. Plus, you technically don't own the water that falls on your roof in Colorado. Colorado. Yeah, yeah, right. so... That's- yeah, or anywhere on the West Coast. International Building Code 6 is the enemy of sustainability. It really is. So, you know, is it worth it to, to move to Texas? We'll do a cost analysis breakdown. Because if you can build anything you want here, and uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of work to have in Texas. This economy is booming here still. And it's still going strong. It's the 15th largest economy on the planet. Texas is the 15th largest economy on the planet. Um, we, we do it big here, apparently. So, <laughs> um, you know, you gotta, you gotta weigh it out. Is it worth it to dig it out where I've got, where I'm at right now? Or should I sell what I've got and move someplace better? And, uh, is it easier to do it in, in other places? Yes, absolutely. If you're living in Arizona right now or New Mexico in the desert, you should come to East Texas for a little while. It's gorgeous here. I mean, there are trees everywhere. There's water everywhere here, huge lakes. They're all man-made lakes, too. That just tells you how much water is actually here. It falls here because they started building lakes to catch it all. So Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. We're not relying like California is on a lake uh, 1,500 miles away, Lake Mead, that's rapidly draining. If, if you actually go to the shores of Lake Mead right now and understand what that water does and what it's used for, it should scare the living shit out of you if you live on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, wait, we're, you know, <laughs> what really scares me is uh, all of our water being pumped through PVC pipes. That scares me. PVC is not inert, people, and it's made with some really nasty stuff. Uh, if it burns, if you're ever around a structure fire, get the hell away from that structure fire. PVC is a class 4 carcinogenic when it burns. And it's not if you'll get cancer, it's when you'll get cancer if you breathe that air. So I'll tell you, you're, you're, you're dead on. I used to do cable. Uh, cable installation was, was kind of one of my background industries where we put all the data cabling in. And back around in early 90s, the, the people snapped to this and finally came up with the concept of a plenum, plenum uh, cable because all that PVC jacking of that cable basically could kill everybody in the structure, even if it didn't do it that day down the road, just from how much toxin would be released if that structure got on fire. You're dead on about the dangers of PVC, specifically when it burns. Yeah, well, you know, they say it's inert, but the reality is, is 
anything that's an inert isn't inert long. And the reason why is because we have environmental factors that change things. And so when PVC is exposed to sunlight or heat and temperature changes, it's no longer inert. And they've buried this stuff. I mean, it's the, the, the movement to expose the dangers of PVC is, is there isn't really one. So, um, we need to move away from that kind of stuff. We need to move away from city supplied water with, uh, with chlorine and, uh, you know, chemicals in it that's causing, you know, brain damage and all kinds of stuff. Uh, and if you're out there, don't get any, uh, don't get any vaccines. They're all full of crap that's going to kill you too. You know? I just, I'm going to take this moment to just dump everything that I'm scared of right now, right? <laughs> that's okay, you know, and I'll tell you one thing, like one thing we could do to make people listen more about dangers of certain substances is to simply stop using the cute little acronyms that, that they come up with to market them and actually just call them what they actually are. So if we called PBC polyvinyl chloride, it, it, it actually might be a little bit more clear to people what we're actually talking about when we're talking about PVC, because that's, that's, I didn't make up PVC. They didn't make it up. That's what it represents, polyvinyl chloride. So that's what we're talking about. And I'm not saying that everybody with a piece of plastic anywhere near them should run away and hide their, their head in a hole in the ground. But long term, there's definitely an effect. Right now, I'm replacing a complete irrigation system, PVC pipe. Not because I'm afraid of PVC pipe, but because a lot of it wasn't buried. You talk about it not being, you know, not being inert if it's, it's exposed to UV light. I turned it on and water float, flowed out of it. Ever I fixed one piece, there was another broken piece. Everywhere this stuff was exposed, exposed to sunlight, it became brittle and it fractured. And I decided to go 100% drip irrigation after that anyway because it's more efficient anyway. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's not inert. If it was, it would still work the way it did when the guy put it in. And it doesn't. Yeah. So, you know... As far as I'm concerned, we we all have to take a holistic approach to sustainability and survivalism. You you got to think community. You got to think sustainable structures. You know, wood stick built structures are not sustainable structures. People, um, they're garbage compared to an earthship. And I I build an earthship out of garbage. So um, we, that should tell you something. You know, right? <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned a three thousand year structure. Let, let's just even put it in a frame that people can get their head around a little bit more. Let's let's call it a three hundred year structure. And I'm not saying it won't last long. I'm just saying let's just put it that way here at the end for people to think about. You talk about building community. One of the most important things, if you want community to be sustainable in a society, is for people to be not only staying where they grew up, but wanting to stay there and having wealth there, true intrinsic wealth like homes and houses. If you can build something that lasts that long and a family can build one and help their children build one and eventually that house becomes multi-generational housing and people don't stay put like they did in the dark ages because they were afraid to go anywhere else, they couldn't go anywhere else, they were unable to, unable to go anywhere else, but they also think, I love this place, this is what I, I, this I shall defend. And they grew up in that society with housing and properties and food forests that are handed down. And we've seen food forests 300 years old. We found one in Morocco that was over 2,000 years old and still sustainable. That builds community. That builds longevity in a community. And that means when you go to your final resting place, whatever it is you believe about that, you can go knowing that you've laid a foundation for your ancestors to continue to live there. And if you look at every sustainable culture the word ancestors just always seems to come up. 
And I think yeah, the I reason think. that it comes up isn't just because people are looking back, but people are actually looking forward and thinking about the day they'll be referred to that way. Yeah, I agree. I, we need to start building multi-generational things. It, you know, where I grew up in Oregon, you turned 18, you left. You know, and that kills a society because there just wasn't anything there for anybody. You know, the timber industry had been destroyed by the spotted owl controversy. So, you know, you've got, uh, you've, we've got to create community where, where you have babies being born and gray-haired people dying and everything in between. And that's a healthy community. Uh, that's a healthy organization. If you don't have, if you have too many people who are all gray hair or blue hair, right? <laughs> um, and, not, and not enough young strapping bucks and enough, uh, you know, children being born, then you've got a dying community. And on the other end, if you've got too many young strapping bucks with no gray hair, then you're, you're lacking wisdom. Yeah. And, and we've lost too much wisdom over the, the decades, over the thousands of years. You know, we've lost too much technology that's good, that's great. You know, like, for instance, the Trump. Do you know what the Trump is? Are you talking it's about a, the, the water flow with the air capture? Yeah, yeah. We're, gonna, we're, we're working on a system where our well pumps uh, 24 or during the – when the sun is out, we're working on a system where we're going to slow pump our well so that it flows into a series of tromps and then uh, recirculates back into a pond. And then uh, if our well ever goes dry, we'll just recirculate the pond through the tromps. So um, with high-pressure air systems, we can have refrigeration. You know, a third of France ran off of Trump's people. It's gone because the oil industry didn't want you to have it. Just like uh, gasification, wood pot, wood burning cars that drove down the road on, you know, there was a guy who just won what was the eco-friendly car of the year two years back or a year back where he drove his Toyota uh, Tacoma across the United States on wood he found on the side of the road, won the, won the award, drove back the, across the United States on wood he found on the side of the road. We're we're doing it the wrong way. <laughs> we need to yeah, wake up. Um, let me on the Trump thing. I think that's something that's like a, a technology that really needs to be re revised. Uh, I remember listening to that. I don't have uh, with me, but I have in my notes somewhere a Bill Mollison lecture where he talked about some year in 1935. Basically, all of the books in U.S. libraries that yeah. outlined how to build this thing were checked out. And just disappeared and never returned again. And basically, so people can understand it, it's a process whereby which you drop water using gravity. That creates uh, air, and that air is then pressurized into a dome and then can be used as pressurized air. And it's isothermic compressed air. And that means it's the cleanest, purest form of atmospheric air you can get your hands on. And you can do anything from run a car with it to cool food with it. And you basically have an unlimited supply. And the beauty is... The water is returned to the system as good or better than it went in. It's basically been oxygenated. So it, it doesn't actually use water. It just allows water to do work and then puts water back out the other end of a cycle. And, and, and there were all types of equipment that ran on this stuff until the oil industry got rid of it. And I know that a lot of times when we talk about stuff like that, people start going, conspiracy, all that. You guys should know better with me, man. I, you know, I, I always tell you, think for yourself. And, 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 but if you research the history on this, 
I can tell you right now, Mark's dead on with this. And when I hear something confirmed by a guy like Bill Mollison, you know, I talk a little bit of some of his quirkiness now up to old age. But basically, I trust the man, and, and it, you're telling me the same thing. And, and my independent research has confounded that. So you have three different sources here on this technology telling you the same thing. And we can rebuild this stuff. It's not like it's gone forever. It's, it's an idea. Yeah. And the beauty is information is infinite. It never goes away. Once it's created, once a thought exists, it's always there. It's just up to us to recapture it. Yeah, we, you know, we've lost so many things that are awesome. I mean, FEMA re- reintroduced the uh, biogasifier uh, in the 70s, and that was basically a lost technology. But the government gave it back out because we were afraid our food system was going to collapse, so they gave it to the farmers. And since then, it's really grown quite a bit. Um, to the point where you, you can you can drive your vehicle across the country or make electricity off of uh, off of wood or biomass. Um, and the out you know I'm a big believer in the biomass movement. I like solar panels. I love them. You know they work when the sun is out and uh, they have a longevity. Um, they're low maintenance, so there's not a lot of work to go into it. And I I like that aspect of it. Um, but we need to be multifaceted when we come to energy. And uh, and energy is is in everything. You know, the sun is the energy source for our planet. Uh, trees are an energy source. They regrow. They're a renewable energy resource, a truly renewable energy resource. I'm a huge um, fan of solar panels if you use it in the right context. The solar panels yeah. I'm talking about are trees. That's what a tree yeah. is. A tree is a ginormous naturally reproducible solar panel. That's how. That's what every leaf, every blade of grass is, is a solar panel. And even when you burn oil, you're burning solar energy. It, it all goes yeah. back to solar process. So well, anyway, Jack, I, I, can you, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I can talk to you for days. I think we would get along really well. I think we need to hook up and maybe have a beer together or something sometime. But I do want to give you a chance to give your uh, your organization a good plug here at the end and tell people how they can get involved in your training, where they can learn more about you, things like that. All right. So we're uh, biotexturetraining.com, um, and it's B-I-O-T-E-C-H. I wanted to dif- differentiate ourselves a little bit from, from Earthship Biotexture. Uh, you know, biotexture uh, is a is an older term than than what Mike Reynolds has, has done. It was coined by a guy. It's living architecture. It's what it is. So we we hold training classes. We've got an internship coming up in um, in March, uh, just outside of Dallas, a couple hours outside of Dallas. It's two weekend or two weeks. You can come and camp on site. It's a beautiful site. Uh, all the facilities are there. Um, and uh, build an aquaponics system. Learn how to do it. Um, we've got uh, structures coming up. They're not posted on our website yet, but they will be. And if you want to apply to come to some of our classes, there's an application button on our training page. Uh, just click on that, fill it out. Um, we want to know who you are. We want to make sure that you're uh, you're not a serial killer. Um, <laughs> we take care. We like we like our we like our students too. I've I've made some really good friends through our training programs. Matter of fact. Uh, Four people are here on this property right now cutting in uh, metal and wood uh, to build another aquaponics system for another homestead close to us here, and they're all from my training classes. And uh, we're building community this way. It's a good thing. That's awesome. I can promise you I'll get down there sooner or later. And 
As far as the website, again, it's biotexturetraining.com. I will have links in the show notes for everybody to get by the site and take a look at it today. And, uh, Mark, I have to tell you, I, I don't think this will be the uh, the last time that you'll be on the Survival Podcast. You have an open invitation to return whenever you have anything more to discuss. And I do think you're right. I think you and I can talk for days like this. Thank you, Jack. I, I'd love to do it anytime you want to. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirigo today along with Mark Kirkwood helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Nobody up there cares, they're living for